welcome to Black Earth Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Atieno Osieo. Black Earth is an interview podcast that's celebrating nature and the incredible Black women leaders in the environmental movement. In today's episode, I'm joined by Evie Muir. Evie is a writer, a domestic abuse survivor and specialist, and the founder of Peaks of Colour. Peaks of Colour is a nature for healing community group by and for people of colour. In our conversation today, Evie and I explore abolitionist visions for earth care and how these visions can help us reimagine the environmental movement. Today's episode contains some very powerful themes, including Evie's experiences of surviving domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and white supremacy terrorism. If you're especially affected by these themes, this is a trigger warning for you. So, my name's Evie Muir, my pronouns are she and they, and I am a domestic abuse specialist and survivor, um, and I am a writer and founder of Peaks of Colour. I always have to like try and pronounce that better because I'm so northern, it always sounds like I'm saying pizza. Um, so Peaks of Colour, um, which is a nature for healing grassroots community group uh, by and for people of colour only. I think that's it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Evie. <laughs> You know, what's so interesting is like when you said uh, you're so Northern, I actually realized people don't know what that means. Like we've got listeners from like 99 countries. So could you tell us what Northern, what you mean in that context? So Northern (laughs) is in the North of England. Um, I am born and raised in Doncaster, which is a a really working class ex-industrial town uh in south yorkshire and i have been living in sheffield um an ex-industrial city um up north for quite a few years now um so yeah the north of england representing <laughs> yes yes and we love it we're here for we're it north today. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure <laughs> um so, Evie, how would you describe your relationship with nature? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think I'm just in love with it. Like, I'm just I'm just so in love with it. And um, I'd really love to say that that was mutual. And I think the whole point of my work, really, and just probably life in general, is to aim for that to be a mutually reciprocal relationship with nature because I don't think any of us can really say that we have that given the context in where we're living as much as we want to. It's so hard to. We're in an extremely capitalist, white Western society. So those factors really sever our connections with nature. Um but for me, I think it's just building that relationship, continuing to build it as, as um, 
as lovingly as possible and in a way that isn't extractive. I think capitalism can only um, offer us a relationship with nature that is extractive, where we take from it and don't give anything back other than more destruction, or we take from it in so much that there's nothing left to take or there's nothing left for anyone else to enjoy, including nature itself. So I think for me, it's um, over the years, I've just fallen so deeply in love with it that it feels like a responsibility to build a relationship where I know I can give back. I think it gives me so much in way of kind of mental health support and trauma recovery and connection with my community and my family and my friends that it feels like a responsibility to be able to give something back to it um, and find figure out what that is that I can do and I think that's something we should all be doing really is figuring out what our role can be in, in giving something back to nature um, so that it doesn't feel like I'm just taking and I think there's you know, we all do that in different ways, whether it's like fossil fuel companies that are quite literally extracting from the land. Um, but for me, I think what I take from it is the kind of like the healing power, so to speak. And I feel like that sounds really wishy-washy, but I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute, um, that it, that it offers. Um, and I think like you can't take something that's that kind of transformative um, without giving back something in return. So I definitely say it's extremely deeply loving and in, yeah, one that I hope will continue to be reciprocal and can build that reciprocity. God, I can't even say it. Um, yeah, as I kind of like, as I grow into and with nature too. Thank you so much, Evie. Um, I really appreciate that um, that element of firstly centering your experience and your relationship with with Earth on love, and that intention of reciprocity. Um, because when we we start to see nature as a living being, there's really space and capacity mm. for reciprocity. And I think one of the the, the biggest fallacies that come from capitalism is this idea that nature is this thing without life. It's an object and it's therefore anything, we can do anything to it. But actually seeing nature for what it is as a living being opens up space for questions like mm -hmm. consent and reciprocity and exchange and care, you know, uh, and communication as well. Um, so much of my experience of nature being a healing, healing being in my life has come from the fact that nature actually literally emits mm. things to me that allows me to like have wholeness and wellness in my life, you know? So mm. yeah, I'm really grateful for you sharing that with us. No problem. So I'm 30 next year and I have been, um, yeah, I guess like carrying a lot of trauma since I was probably about five or six. 
And sometimes I really struggle with the idea that there could be another 30 years of it, that, that yes, I'm so much more healed, so to speak, than I was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But I think there's a recognition that this like healing journey is lifelong. And sometimes that feels really daunting and that feels like a lot. Um, but in terms of, yeah, me getting to this point where I'm at currently, um, and I will preface it by saying like, I am at the best place, I guess, on that healing journey that I've ever been. And I'm really grateful for that. And like, I can recognize how much work I've put in for that and how much support I've had to get to this place also, whilst also recognizing that like, I've still got so far to go and like, it's not, I don't know, I don't know what being healed full stop look like, looks like for me. I have a feeling not many of us do, to be honest. Um, so it is kind of that idea of like stepping into the unknown and just kind of, yeah, working towards the unknown and this kind of like imagined version of myself that like I've never experienced before. Um, so that's where I currently am at. And that has come from, yeah, a, a real messy journey, um, as I think it usually always is. It's never, it's never straightforward. Um, yeah, where to start from? Well, I, um, I witnessed abuse. My dad abused my mum when I was little. Um, I feel like that's important to say because, um, in recent years, I can't remember specifically because lockdown brain in the past couple of years, um, a new, uh, definition of domestic abuse was, um, released, launched in England as part of the, um, domestic abuse bill, which I'll caveat by saying, I think is trash, but <laughs> regardless, um, that includes uh, the witnessing of abuse as an experience of abuse. So now children who were witnessing abuse can also uh, be identified as victims too. So I feel like that's just an important like side note. Um, and then um, when I think I was probably 14 or 15 when I got into my first uh, it's so weird to say like my first, like I own it. It's such weird language we have around abuse, but I feel like everyone will know what I mean. Um, yeah, the first um, abusive relationship I was in, I got into that when I was about 14, 15, lasted way into university, probably like my second year of uni. Um, and then quite quickly after that, um, went into a second abusive relationship um, that I left in 2018. Um, and the first one was defined really by physical abuse and coercive control, emotional abuse. The second one was purposely not defined by, uh, physical abuse. He was so conscious to not leave a mark in any way, shape or form. Um, but was predominantly emotional abuse and sexual abuse. And actually he has a, uh, yeah, a long kind of list of, of victims that he's left in his path over the years too, alongside me. Um, and so I think kind of like my, you know, these were really formative years 
as like a teenager growing up um, and to have your sense of self defined by, and I think it's quite important to say defined by white men um, as a mixed race black girl um, was, was huge. It's huge. There's, I could talk about it forever, the kind of the ways that um, our racial identities often as um, black teenagers, black women are manipulated um, through the lens of this like white dominance, power and control in interpersonal relationships. Um, and that was certainly my experience that the racial violence and the gendered violence were entwined. Um, and yeah, it was, yeah, essentially a decade, if not longer of, um, being in, of living in, um, complete survival mode of, living like in live trauma in real time all day, every day. Um, and yeah, just kind of trying to figure out who I am in the context of being told who I was by two consecutive, really abusive partners. Um, so I think that's like the context. I, well, I guess to say as well, so I left, my abuse, my last abuser in 2018 and moved to Sheffield quite quickly afterwards. And that really kind of began the real journey of healing very gradually at first. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, you know, having the physical space and safety is a huge part of that to be able to then give yourself mental space and emotional space to think, okay, what do I need? What's next? And figure that out for myself after years of being told what it was that I needed or liked or wanted. Um, so it's been quite a short period really of time in terms of my own exploration of who I am and what I need and how I can build that for myself. Um, yeah, so I think it's definitely been like in terms of my life, I've been in uh, abusive relationships longer than I haven't been. So I'm really conscious of that, like just that self-awareness to like hold space for myself and show myself care and show myself grace and um, yeah, to not have any wild expectations of myself to be in a place I'm just not yet. I am where I'm at and I'm doing the best that I can with that journey. So I think that's all we can ask of ourselves. And you're kind of carrying so much trauma and it's been such a big part of your life. Thank you, Evie. Thank you for sharing. Thank you um, for holding space for it. Of course. I can't believe that you are, you know, as you, as I heard you say, Healing is a lifelong journey. Uh, and I can't imagine you've been doing that alongside your work in the uh, violence against women and girls sector, which you, you've been in for such a mm. long time. Um, how have you made space to tend to yourself and tend to your own healing practices whilst also you know, creating space and having to do that work for other people or with mm. other people, shall I say? Yeah, I guess, um, 
yeah, I guess the, the quick answer is I haven't and, um, or I, I didn't, I should say, past tense because, um, the violence against women and girls sector doesn't allow you to. And I think that's really important. I started working in the violence against women and girls sector when I was 18. So I had been in it 10 years before I left. Um, and I went into it as so many of us do. And, you know, I don't really think there's statistics around this, but I think it's fair to say the majority of people working in the Vogue sector are survivors themselves or have at least witnessed someone else who who've experienced it. Like they have a relationship with and an understanding of abuse quite intimately. Um, so I, yeah, I started working in the sector whilst I was at university in my first year and I never left. And I started off working in uh, refuge support um, and then moved to advocacy support, which is um, very similar, just not within a refuge setting. Um, and then specialised in the support of black and queer survivors of um, domestic abuse and sexual violence. Um, and from that, uh, moved quite swiftly into not only the support, but the kind of development roles that are all about changing the system from within. And it's very diversity, inclusion, and it's a load of crap. Um, because, yeah, by the time I'd done my 10 years, I realized, and I, I still feel really strongly about this, I don't believe the violence against women and girls sector will ever eradicate gendered violence, ever. Um, it simply is not in the position to do so. The charity sector as a whole is not in a position to eradicate whatever elements of social injustice it says it's trying to target. Um, for many reasons, it's because of how it gets its funding. It's because of how, like, tied to capitalism and white supremacy it is, um, and the violence against women and girls sector actually upholds patriarchy. It, it upholds abuse. Um, the amount of violence and harm I've seen perpetrated by, particularly white women in power within the violence against women and girls sector, is like breathtaking, um, and we see this across the board. It's so rapid at the minute, especially in terms of um, uh, gender critical feminism and anti-trans um, hate that is really rooted within the violence against women and girls sector. I've worked with uh, CEOs, white women who are CEOs, who have all this power and refuse to support some of the most marginalized survivors in our communities um, and we'll act, it's not even that they'll refuse to support and turn away at the door. It's that they'll actively target and harass and perpetrate a lot of the abuses that we are meant to be supporting people with, but will do so in an institutional level. Um, I've, I worked there for 10 years, didn't receive therapy once from a organization until the last like six months of me working there within a different organization. Um, and it's just trash. It's just trash. It can't do what it's meant to do. And because of that, because of how it manipulates its workers, um, who are mostly survivors, um, into kind of being complicit in um, just a maintaining of harm. Um, 
and in kind of forwarding this idea that the only way to receive healing and justice is to churn people through a really carceral system where only or well where the majority of people who receive this western notion of justice are white women middle class women women with resources women who aren't going to be re-victimized by the police women who aren't going to be re-victimized by health services um but even then the statistics of how many rape cases go to trial never mind conviction are minimal it's like not point something something percent it's daft so how is there any hope for any of us who have intersectional identities to be able to access that healing and justice so as support workers we end up really complicit in that and we're told that we have to like martyr ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for this work um so it meant that for most of my time in that sector working in that sector it ran parallel to me being in abusive relationships and getting no support on either side of that equation. I was told I had to sacrifice myself for my abusive partners whilst also being told I was having to I should sacrifice myself for the work and therefore I was just this kind of like malleable object spinning in thin air that anyone could like take a piece out of. Um so it wasn't until I left my abusive relationships and left my abusive workplaces that I felt like I had space and time to actually, yeah, to look after myself and to figure out what that meant and to, um, to redefine what healing and justice looks like for me as an individual, but then uh, me as a movement worker and kind of community organizer. And I think that's quite important because um, before, before leaving the violence against women and girls, violence against women and girls sector, um, I was really dismissive of abolition as a movement. I really, I was like, yeah, that's cute. Great idea. Sounds great. It's never going to happen. And I think that's really important because I felt that way because I was in an institution where abolition did feel, uh, impossible. Like the violence against women and girls sector is not abolishing gendered violence. It's doing nothing to abolish gendered violence. So therefore, of course, it seems impossible. Um, and you're in this kind of like hamster wheel that you can't get off and you're just holding and maintaining the abuse. And it's deeply re-traumatizing. And um, there is no room for hope and imagination because you get up, you go to work, you experience of the people's trauma you go home and sit with your own trauma if you're lucky if they don't make you do overtime for free and then you go back and do the same thing every day and you you just hold it so there is no space to sit and think how can things be done differently never mind like put those things into practice so it was only when I left and at the time I didn't think I was leaving I thought it was just going to be a break because I really really believed and I guess it's part of that conditioning that there was no way that I could do this work otherwise, that if I wanted to support survivors, if I wanted to do work against gendered violence, the only way I could do so was in the sector. Um, so I thought I just need a break because I'm so burnt out um, and then I'll have to go back. I don't have a choice but to go back and it's up to me to figure out how I do that in a way that this sector doesn't cause me any more harm than it, harm than it already has. 
Um, I had two months break and lo and behold, that's all it took for me to be able to think for myself and to have and hold space for hope and imagination and to think creatively. And like that in and of itself was transformative to be able to actually read abolitionist texts and see them as a possibility as opposed to an impossibility. Um, and that was it. There was no turning back from that point. I didn't, I haven't returned to the violence against women and girls sector and I don't think I will. Um, and I think that's because over the past couple of years, what we're building with peaks of colour is actively evidencing that it is possible to, to navigate <laughs> oppressions through a hopeful and imaginative lens and to build something that's alternative. Um, and like, we're doing it, like we're just doing it. It's like, it's not, it's actually not that hard. It's not that deep. Um, it requires like a lot of unlearning and a lot of like intention and a lot of support and a lot of community, but it's doable. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, that brings us to now. <laughs> So can you tell us more about uh, Peaks of Colour, um, your intention? Because I, you know, from what I've read on your website, um, it's founded on um, Black and abolitionist feminist ethos, which feels very, there's a lot of juice in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you tell us more about, (laughs) yeah, about Peaks of Colour and the world you're building and some of those... um, uh, uh, values, I guess, or, or visions that are forming the, the world that you're building through Peaks of Colour. Absolutely. Um, God, where to start actually? So yeah, Peaks of Colour, we are, like I said, grassroots nature for healing uh, community group by and for people of colour. And I think our work is pretty simple and I quite like that. I think you know, we have a tendency to com- overcomplicate things in uh, movement spaces and it doesn't need to be. It's a relatively simple idea that is bring our communities to the outdoors and essentially see what happens and bring our communities to the outdoors within a framework of healing and justice and exploration and figuring out what those things mean to us when we have the time and space to rethink them, to reimagine them, to dream them for ourselves. Um, So that comes in the form of monthly walks, which are currently paused at the minute until next year um, so that I can focus on writing. Um, But they are a really important part of the work that we do because the monthly walks are just that. They are um, just a really informal and intimate invitation for people to come and walk with us. Um, We don't use language like healing uh, in terms of like advertising them and it is just what it is we go for a walk and see what comes up for you and it might be that people um, have never been to the Peak District before and are wanting to try something new it might be that someone uh, has been to the Peak District loads but wants to do so in a community of people that looks like them and has the same lived experiences as them and it might be that um, 
yeah, it, it can be, people can come for whatever reason they wish um, and take from it whatever they wish. There is no kind of like output where it says you have to, or you can expect to be like 10% more healed by the end of each walk. That's just not what life is. You can come and just take, have a laugh and that's enough. You can come and like meet new people and leave with a connection that you didn't have before. That's also enough. You can come and like unlock something that you didn't know was buried within your like own emotional health. And that's also okay. You come and take what you need from it. Um, and then we have our um, workshops, which are creative and holistic workshops in nature. Um, they take place seasonally and they um, really get a slightly deeper into the nitty gritty of things of exploring the, um, yeah, those alternative routes to healing and justice and how we do that. So we will bring in other facilitators of colour and we have some amazing ones that have joined us and that are, are due to join us in the future um, that bring their own creative and imaginative practices, that bring their own abolition abolitionist practices. And we look at how um, racial justice and land justice and gender justice are all intersected. And so these are big topics, right? They're big themes. But in reality, what it is, is us going on a walk, sitting in a field, by a river, having conversations, doing activities, having a laugh, having a cry, supporting each other um, and heading back home again, essentially. So, for example, we um, had a workshop in June that was part of Migration Matters Festival, which is an arts and cultural festival in Sheffield. And it was a movement workshop and a bird watching workshop that um, looked at really answering the question to what does it feel like to be free as a, or as free as a bird? Um, the idea that um, birds, up until recent legislation changes at least, have always been celebrated for the migration, especially in white conservation spaces, but the migration of humans especially people of colour, um, is consistently demonised. We're consistently dehumanised for it. Um, and trying to merge those the connections with the two. Um, so all we were doing really is going on a walk with some binoculars and bird watching, and then coming into a space and being guided in a movement, um, a movement meditation. And um, yet what we were really doing is um, engaging in embodied practice, in challenging um, white eco-justice spaces. We were um, connecting with our ancestral connections with nature. We were connecting with ourselves as communities of people of colour, forming relationships, forming bonds. And all of that is, I just think there's a really lovely, like subliminal magic to that kind of work because um, it's so deep. <laughs> what we're doing is really deep, but at the same time, we're just going on a walk or at the same time, we're just going for a wild swim. And yet the benefits and the things that we like, again, that we like take from nature in that way are huge. They're huge. It could be, you know, if someone learns a new coping mechanism, mine is wild swimming. So it might be that we introduce someone to that. It might be that we introduce someone to nature meditation 
and that like one person comes away feeling more uh, equipped to handle the harshness of real life after they leave our little naturey bubble. Um, it might be that people have connections that they didn't know they needed at the end. It might be that someone is like swapped a number for their acupuncturist or their like therapist or, you know, there's really like tangible uh, support systems and like uh, signpostings. Um, it might be that someone's learned a new walk that's on their doorstep and they feel confident enough to do that on their own without us now. There are so many things that that you can, yeah, that you can uh, experience and gain from being in nature and in community at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's that's where. And I guess in terms of the the abolitionist and uh, black feminist influence and kind of grounding for us nature is like the lens in which we do this experimental work and it has to be experimental work because we're trying to build something that doesn't currently exist so like we've all and like our parents our grandparents have all been raised within a racial capitalist system a white supremacist system. So none of us really know what it is that we're building towards without imagining it, without experimenting it, without, um, yeah, the trial and error, seeing if this works, seeing if that works, it might work for us now. It might not work for us five years from now and vice versa. Um, so that's really kind of like what we're rooted in and the idea that nature is our, yeah, it's our lens in which to do that experimentation work. There might be other organizations that do it through uh, a space model or, um, yeah, like an art space model. Um, and there are those great organizations doing all of those things. And for us, it's looking at nature and the land and how uh, that can offer an alternative template for us. Um, I guess one example would be um, the workshop that's coming up in September actually is going to look at this. Um, it's um, with um Bryony Ben Gabbert and um uh Manar um Arifin and we are um exploring how fungi and mycelium networks can offer an alternative model for community care and organizing and governance um that we hope will then like influence Peaks of Colours work because we don't want a traditional charity sector model type of board of trustees thing. We want to uh, model our work based on um, the ways that we know that nature models itself and that nature flourishes in and of itself. So um, it really allows us to be creative in that like unlearning of racial capitalism and rebuilding of something that just simply doesn't exist. And it's so freeing to have that kind of like, well, let's see what happens. And, you know, it means we can be unprofessional and imperfect and experimental and have fun with the work at the same time, instead of, you know, that routine of um, getting up and going to a job that you hate and, um, yeah, coming back more traumatized that you went in from it and repeat every single day Instead, we're building, it's not just the work that we're doing, it's how we do the work as well. And I think that's really important in terms of the, yeah, the abolitionist and black feminist um, foundations. Wow. That's so deep. <laughs> <laughs> it's so deep. 
same time. It's, it's deep and it's not deep. I know, I know, I know. It just know. is. Like, it you know, just is. <laughs> it just is. I feel, for me, it's, for me, it feels deep because, well, one of the reasons why it feels deep for me is because, um, so many things that you are embodying through peaks of color uh, feels uh, like it's actually disrupting Um, um, structures of oppression, um, of division, which so much of our world functions on now. So this idea of like imagination, like creative imagination of you know, of relationship uh, with other people and with nature, of community, um, of being experimental. Um, you know, these are all, I feel uh, like, I would, I, I call it human intelligence. Oh. Like I call it, you know, those are things that as a, as a human species, our gifts we can offer to the rest of of nature but it's also really policed in some of the structures in which we live in and so that's why for me you know as I heard you say it's deep but it's Mm -hmm. not deep right (laughs) it's deep because it's so radical but it's also not deep because it's part of who we are our innate creations as human beings is to be creative is to be imaginative it's to live in community it's to value relationship it's to value exchange but that is not how the political and economic structures which we currently live in yeah. want us to be, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I just, when I was hearing that, I was like, yeah, this is this is world building. Um, this is, you know, the, the dreams of speculative fiction. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I think it's also something that I draw a lot of strength from um, because... Um, there's these ideas that like the margins of society, whatever that looks like in depending mm-hmm. on where you are, are meant to be these places where like it's, it's a place where you're devoid of things, you know, you don't have this, you don't have that. But also I find that places that are deemed to be margins are extremely creative, are extremely mm-hmm. radical because people are literally having to create out of yeah. nothing the fundamentals mm-hmm. of life, like community, like a sense of justice, like safety. And so, yeah, for me, um, it is deep and it's not deep at the same it's time. It's power, and, right? Like it's, it feels like mm-hmm. a power that um, the powers that be really want us to be estranged from and disconnected from. And there's something about, it really just feels like a like consecutive light bulb moments of just realizing um yeah like the veil lifting of the things that we've been conditioned to believe conditioned to be to believe on normal and like other status quo and are unchangeable and then all of a sudden and I I just hope that we continue to have these kind of light bulb moments where it's like oh we don't actually have to do it this way and oh wait this is possible and oh this is not only possible but it's quite straightforward and easy and it's fun and like no one's getting harmed in the process and it all is actually falling into place and it feels good. And I think a big part of the work that we're doing is 
leaning into in the hope of like just fully embracing embodied practice as something that is our like bread and butter essentially. And that's with the understanding that um, we're all at different points in our own healing journey. So embodied practice is hard for people with trauma because our bodies are not safe for us a lot of the time. Um, so we are like tiptoeing really gently into that arena of embodied practice. And um, I mean, I feel like we're, there is so much potential for us to go further. And yet where we're already at currently has opened up worlds for us in terms of, I mean, it's, it's huge. I feel like this is one of the most like revolutionary things we can do is to only move through what feels good. Like that is like, it still blows my mind. Like the thought that for 10 years I was working in a sector whilst also in relationships where I quite literally never felt good in my body, in my brain as me and was told, and I guess particularly in the kind of violence against women and girls context, was told that was normal and was told to put up and shut up and we were all meant to just suffer for the greater good of this very not great job. Um, And then actually, so like to pivot that and to transform that and to really center only what feels good for me, what feels good for the team, uh, what feels good for the partners that we work with and and what feels good for the communities that we work with is huge because it completely redirects the work we have turned down so many opportunities we've said no to so many things because it doesn't feel good and we've said yes to so many things that we probably would never have uh even imagined were available to us because we've said no to things and it's opened up space for the things that feel good um it's opened up space for the yes and i think adrian marie brown talks about that quite a lot uh, with their like concept of um, pleasure activism and it can be it's you know it's a big concept again it's a deep concept but in reality it's not that deep it is quite literally like my, I've got such an anxious body and I know what anxiety feels like I know what depression feels like I know what stress feels like in my body so many of us are still learning what joy feels like in our body what pleasure feels like in our body um, and it's about tapping into those feelings to being like, oh, my tummy's churning itself inside out. I know what that means. I know that means I'm anxious and therefore this space probably isn't safe for me or this conversation probably isn't safe for me or this opportunity, I should turn it down. And we've been moving through that and therefore say no to the things that don't feel good um, has opened up for the things that do. Um, And with the context of, you know, some you know, we're not looking at three rose tinted sunglasses where we will only ever be able to do things that feel good all the time. But I think it also means that when there's the things that you kind of have to do, like, I don't know, banking, and that none of that feels good for me, but all the like bureaucracy of stuff, none of it feels good for me. Um, it's not my thing. Um, but knowing that means that I can put a whole support system in place for when it means I have to do the taxes, when it means I have to do X, Y, and Z. And um, so that I'm not, so that I'm cushioned so that even the shitty stuff feels better and I can get through it without having to like submerge myself into bad feelings. Um, 
And, you know, Healing Justice London have been so instrumental in our like understanding and learning of this. Um, and I mean, all I can say is it works. Like we don't, we quite literally don't have to suffer for anything, for any work, for any, that we don't have to, we can, we can actively seek paths of positive emotions, positive feelings, not just for ourselves, but also for our community. And through that lens of like, do no harm, which means that we're not putting our own, uh, pleasure our own positive experience above anyone else's or at the sacrifice of someone else's is that we can all feel good together and that's fine. And I think it's, it's so important to center, um, our, our lives, our being, our experiences on things that Mm -hmm. feel good on pleasure, on joy and allowing the capacity to, to trust because I think it, there's a vulnerability if 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 a group of people have been conditioned mm. to function on survival, they've been conditioned to function on pain. Um, it can be hard to trust things uh, that feel good because it's like, so what's the catch? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what's the catch? It's a scarcity mindset, right? But like, and I know I have yes. this. I know I have this. But anything good mm-hmm. that happens, I. I'm like, oh yeah, great. And then I go into a bit of a hole of like, I can't enjoy this because something bad is going to follow because something bad always follows. And yes, something good might happen, but it's not long until like a new traumatic situation happens. Um, I really lean into that a lot. And I think there's a scarcity in terms of money, but also a scarcity in terms of um, feeling and positive feelings. We feel like we, we... yeah, they're few and far between and they're going to run out any minute. So we've got to hold on to them uh, with both hands. For sure. And I, I, I feel as people who are in some ways facilitating or and supporting other people through their own journey with earth yeah. care, it's, it's really important to make space to acknowledge uh, the level of violence and, and damage that's being done to to earth mm. and to people, but also supporting people to to know what it really feels like when you are living in harmony with nature. Because I fundamentally believe it feels really, really, really good, like that's really, good. really, really good. And that's <laughs> the point. Right? Like I think for us, because nature is the lens in which we explore these things, nature it feels like such a perfect metaphor because I don't know how you can go to nature and not feel good (laughs) immediately, immediately in whatever way you're interacting with it. Like you can't go for a swim and not be like splashing each other. And you immediately return to this like childhood place of awe and wonder and silliness and play, uh, climbing a tree, like figuring out what, uh, what bird it is that you're trying to identify through its song or like identifying a plant for the first time, or I don't know, a butterfly flying past you and you're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like you can't, you can't, there's nothing in nature. And I'd like say a flourishing nature in particular, that like doesn't, um, that can't spark joy and can't spark positive feelings. So just by being in it alone, you're opening yourself up to, um, yeah, what it feels like to feel pleasure and joy and healing and 
um, like safety in a, in a really just like organic, tangible way. For sure. I wanted to speak to you about safety because um, in recent years, okay, so in recent years, there's been a number of like documented cases of uh, Black people, uh, predominantly in America or the UK, going out in, in the outdoors and facing, you know, harassment or just experiences of, of being made to feel unwelcome. Mm. But also that goes beyond to actually threatening people with, with violence. Um, and at the same time, there's been like an offshoot of uh, lots of collectives uh, for uh, people of color. And it's just been really uh, exciting mm-hmm. to see that and, it, and like nourishing um and i know for for many black communities safety is something that is not assumed whenever you step out into public spaces we don't have that guarantee that we c- we'll get back home mm-hmm. you know um by virtue of of um our our racialized identity so i want us just to ask you how how you go about navigating and creating safety uh you know, as a community um, in Peaks of Colour. Yeah, sure. um, and what advice you'd give to other people who were thinking of starting something similar mm. in their communities? Yeah, definitely. I think in terms of how we've gone about it, and I guess for context, um, the Peak District isn't a safe place by default. There is a um, white fascist um, right-wing group, I guess, called which over recent years we've learned are like organizing mostly quietly, but sometimes not quietly at all. Um, and using the Peak District as their safe space to do the organizing. Um, I think in 2020, maybe it was, um, they took to Mamtor, which is one of the Peak District's most like famous hikes. I guess famous might be the right word, um, and pulled out a massive um, uh, White Lives Matter banner. So I think this is really important in the context of like, if the land feels safe for them, it cannot feel safe for us. And we, although we try not to get into it too much, actually, in the terms of like recognising where our time and energy is better placed. But every now and then we are asked to get into it by um, like white-led outdoors organisations who are like so far away from racial justice that like they're not even on the diversity scale, never mind the decolonising scale. Um, and they are like baffled when we say the outdoors isn't safe for them. And I think like fundamentally it comes back to land justice because is it, is it, I think it's like 8% of the land is accessible. Um, and even less than that, I'm going to have to find the like proper statistics, but you know, what do you mean by accessible? uh, Legally accessible, um, for the public. So only 8% of land in England and Wales, um, 
is yeah legally accessible if we access other parts it's that like private land that we have to trespass in order to access um and then i think if you look at the statistics of um who owns the land who lives in the countryside um it's just dire like there's no black people living in the countryside essentially the statistics are minimal so we don't actually own and then there's another argument of whether we should own the land or not but we don't we don't own it we don't have access to it and for me it's that's really important because if we don't own it we don't have access to it um how are we meant to heal without that so it really is a case of like until we can have our own land that we are stewards of then otherwise we're just playing on white people's terms in order to be like you can heal but only on these conditions or you can do this but only on these conditions so they are really really important conversations that like I think underpin all of this so much of the work that Peaks of Colour does at the minute feels quite like I don't want to say superficial because that's really dismissive of the work we're doing but we recognize that it is like surface level in the case of we're doing what we can with what we've got both time capacity like income money wise the whole shebang um whilst knowing that like the potential of what we could do could be huge if we completely recommend the land if we completely like reevaluated what it is to have land sovereignty and um land justice essentially so we how we navigate that is just as intentionally and careful as possible um we center our own needs as the community um we do so through a harm reduction practice so that we're really in a trauma-informed practice so that we are navigating these landscapes, knowing exactly what we need to keep ourselves safe, exactly what our own access needs are. Um, and I think sometimes that feels like all you can do, all you can do is like safeguard, for want of a better word, yourselves and your communities. Um, knowing full well that you are not yet in a position to change something as like deeply uh, institutional as land. So whilst we like figure that out over here, that feels like the long game. In the meantime, we're still going to access that healing, but on our own terms and in ways that keep us safe. So it means, for example, not working with the likes of the National Trust because we don't feel like they can present a landscape of safety for us and other, quite a lot of other white led, um, especially mainstream organizations in the outdoor sector. So we have our points of negotiations. We have our own terms. And I think that's really uncomfortable. We found for a lot of white led organizations um, or landowners that, you know, come to us thinking, you know, with their little white savior hats on and are like, oh, we can, you can work with us and let's see how we can work together. And what can you get from us? And actually they need us more than we need them because they are so uninclusive that it's embarrassing and actually they're losing um, customers, so to speak, because we're quite literally saying we don't want to work with you. Um, and I think there's something really powerful about that of really like divesting from this idea that we need whiteness in order to do 
anything in order to heal, in order to, you know, exist as a community group. It comes down to like, like we have really specific terms of who we will and won't take funding from and, and the funders have to meet our requirements, um, in order for that to happen. Um, it's the same with who we partner with. It's the same with who, like who spaces will come into. And, um, yeah, I think having those points of negotiation that center your trauma and then navigate through that trauma. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily having the walls up forever, but if we need those walls up to keep us safe, we'll do that. And we'll maybe take those walls down if you can prove that you're safe to us, but we're not just going to let anyone bombard us willy nilly. This is how the charity sector has gotten to where it's gotten essentially. So yeah, I think it's just, um, having that grace and compassion for yourself, having and moving through spaces that are and landscapes that aren't safe with that grace and compassion and um in a way that yeah fundamentally is do no harm and we can't we like not many people will do that for us will have that same grace and compassion for us so we have to do it for ourselves I really wanted to speak to you about Radical mm. Rest, your upcoming oh, book, um, Radical Rest, because there's there's been a movement amongst Black women. These past few years has given me so much joy from, you know, Soft Life <laughs> Inc., <laughs> the Soft Life community to the NAP ministry. I mean, I'm, I'm really here for it. I am... I am actually an active participant <laughs> of this divestment that's happening. Um, I think the previous generations of Black womanhood did a lot and they did what they had to do. Um, but I think from my experience, my own personal experience of the women I've seen in my community, there was a lot of hard work, a lot of lifting, uplifting, mm-hmm. holding up communities. It was just a lot of stress on our bodies, a lot of carrying, heavy lifting. And I just love that for this current generation, uh, we're just saying, mm-hmm. no, no, thank you. This isn't, it's not possible. It's yeah. actually not possible. We cannot do it. <laughs> um, and I and I truly appreciate, I truly appreciate and understand that in spaces and situations of survival, you 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 have to do what you have to do mm. to survive, right? So I'm not critiquing in any way um, the generations who've come before us who've done that, who are mm. doing it now also in in different situations, right? But I I am very supportive of us separating struggle from Black womanhood as to intertwined elements when they're not there they're not (laughs) so I just want to hear about radical rest and your intentions and the book and everything whatever you have to share with us I am (laughs) I co-sign already (laughs) where to begin god yeah I mean it's such a labor of love in itself and um it's still in the works it's due to come out next year probably this time next year ish give or take um 
And yeah, it's a, a abolitionist, black feminist exploration of um, activist burnout um, and really looking at what it is and why it is and why we, all the things you were saying essentially, why um, we have come to be as we are, this like really exhausted, um, yeah, exhausted population of community builders essentially who are really struggling to keep up the fight um, and then kind of pivoting that and looking at what those alternatives could be, how we can uh, build movements that centre rest and very much like following peaks of journey into our own, peaks of colours journey even into our own exploration of that. Um, And also saying like, well, we can't do this on our own in order for us to to be able to have, uh, to lead with rest. We also need to be doing so in a society that allows us to do that. And I think a big part of, yeah, I guess like the research and the understanding throughout the book is that the fact that we are so divested from rest is that it's no accident. Like all these systems, uh, racial capitalism in particular, is built to ensure that we don't rest, that we don't have the space and time to think, dream, imagine, question, unlearn, um, very similar to the charity sector. <laughs> um, it's no accident that the charity sector doesn't let us do those things either. Um, and that so many of us as activists are like molded within that charity sector so that actually there's like scores of potential radical movement builders that are assimilated into a really I don't know, just whitewashed and watered down version of activism, manipulated version of activism within that charity sector. Um, so it's kind of naming these things. It's speaking to movement builders. I've, yeah, I've spoken to so many cool, fascinating, amazing organizers that are doing just phenomenal work, both in the work that they do, but again, how they do the work and how rest is centered, how um, decolonized practice, how abolitionist practice is centered. Um, and yeah, it's not been easy. I can say that much. It's, it's been, it's been ironic. I think I, I burnt out about two weeks ago. I hit burnout myself while writing the book about burnout. So there's been so many lessons <laughs> throughout. Um, and it is like, it, you're, I'm essentially writing it in real time. It probably may have been easier if I was writing it in hindsight, but we're here now. So it's actually like following my journey as me, my journey as Peaks of Colour and like Peaks of Colour's journey into uh, this exploration of what it is to be able to centre rest in the work that we do. Um, and really, yeah, burnout is, I guess, just the catalyst or yeah, the thing that we're looking at, which really allows us to examine all these other facets of society. Through burnout, we can understand racial capitalism, land injustice, um, uh, white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, the family. Like there are so many mental health, physical health. Like there's so many things that burnout that kind of offshoots out of a conversation or a 
discussion around burnout because, um, yeah, I think it's, it really, the fact that we are so burnt out shows it's the symptom of a really sick society. Um, and it's from there that I kind of do that, like unweaving and unpacking. Um, and yeah, hopefully by the end of it, it'll be kind of like a, again, I guess, I guess doing the same thing, but that we hope Peaks of Colour does just kind of evidence that another way is possible, that we don't have to uh, just roll over and give in to these systems that we are conditioned are the norm and the be all and end all that actually we can imagine something different. And then if we can imagine it, we can build it. Thank you so much. I feel that the the work that you are creating now through the book, but also through your, your life practice, mm. the, just you living is so essential to our conversations about what it means to belong to the wider collective movement mm. uh, of people who are working to restore and, and care for earth and also address the root causes of why we're in this situation uh, with, with the climate and, and nature loss. And I feel there can be such a sense of urgency within our bodies to, to feel like we are running mm -hmm. out of time and there is no, you know, but that can put us in a really dangerous space, um, which doesn't allow us to, to actually even step back and say, mm -hmm. hold on, are we, we are running out of time in, in some ways, but the, the urgency shouldn't be coming from this place. It should be the urgency to eradicate the things that yeah. are actually perpetuating and driving us to mm. destruction. Um, and I also, I, I feel very moved by, you know, where you're at right now and thinking about radical rest, because I know this idea of the strong black woman that, shapes so much of our identity and having to be strong yeah, for everyone yeah. else and having to be victorious and, and come out on top all the time just isn't kind and compassionate to the realities of, you know, living through yeah. multiple, you know, crises, whether it's um, the violence of racism or anti-blackness, the, the violence of, uh, a capitalist yeah. system or the violence of, of climate injustice and just all these things, yeah. you know, um, I think radical rest gives us permission to kind of take a step back and, and say no to some of these expectations that can be placed on black women to, to a solve world hunger and mm -hmm. b do it smiling and looking pristine and perfect. Uh, which is in. I'm going to wrap up in my jumping yeah. gun and get me how I am on that particular day and yeah. say whatever truths I've got and then I'll bow out and have a nap. Like, is that? Yes, for sure, for sure. Uh, it's thank you so much, yeah, Evie. Um, it's been such a pleasure. Um, how can we support your work? How can we support you? No, let me rephrase that. How can we support you and how can we support whatever it is you're doing and being in the world? Wow. You are more than your work. Sorry yeah, about that. I, <laughs> I have to check myself no, real quick. I appreciate it because I fall into that trap 
as much as the next person. Um, I guess in answer to both things, really, because as much as, yeah, as much as we don't want to be our work, it's also kind of goes hand in hand. The more peaks of colour is supported, the more I also will be supported as like one of the people behind the scenes of it. Um, so yeah, I guess the more peaks of colour is supported, the more I get to rest, <laughs> the more our team gets to rest. Um, and so a big part of that is obviously financial. We've got a donation, a PayPal donation link on our Instagram and all that jazz. So if anyone has financial capacity in these cost of living times, crack on because uh, no amount, what we've learned is that no amount of funding is ever enough to actualize the dreams that, the dreams that we want whilst also being able to get paid for doing those dreams because we can't do it for free. It comes back to, yeah, time capacity, being resourced. We need to be resourced. Um, and I think money's a big part of that. But also, I'm going to put it out there into the universe. Land is a huge part of that. If there's any rich white landowner out there that wants to share, <laughs> hook us up because it's about time for one. And I, yeah, I think the future of Peaks of Colour and also the future of any black person's ability to rest relies on having space. It's the idea of spatial justice and land justice entwined. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to put that out there <laughs> while we're here. Um, but otherwise, uh, it's all the obvious stuff just to share our work, come join our work as well. Um, and to contribute to it in whichever way you feel you can. I think we really have open an open door policy about this kind of thing. It's most certainly not just me and there is a way for everyone to contribute, big or small, um, and we're just open ears to all of it. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Evie. Thank you so much. What a blessing. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us in today's conversation. We'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Black Earth Podcast. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, your communities. And you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Black Earth is a proudly independent podcast, and we are on a mission to reconnect and heal humanity's relationship with nature. If you'd like to support us, we are on Patreon at Black Earth Podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode. <laughs>